I think they got a lot of riches right now. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Lucy Caldwell, filling in for Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping our political landscape. On our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup is Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign, and he was an advisor previously to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, it's great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. And making his Roundup debut is Michael Slaby. Michael is the chief strategist at Harmony Labs, where he works on accelerating media reform and transformation. Michael is a veteran of both of Barack Obama's presidential campaigns. He served as chief technology officer in 2008 and then as chief integration and innovation officer in 2012. He's a former fellow at the Shorenstein Center at the Kennedy School. And Michael is the author of For All the People, a book about the relationship between media, technology, and our civic life. Welcome to the Roundup, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. On this week's Roundup, first, we will discuss the recall election of San Francisco's district attorney, the rise in crime, and what it might mean heading toward the general elections this fall. Then, we'll look at whether Facebook destroyed democracy and what Sheryl Sandberg's exit from Meta could mean for the social media giant. We're also going to talk about President Biden's planned trip to Saudi Arabia and what it means for our relationship with the authoritarian regime. Finally, we'll flip over to Politicology Plus, where we'll discuss the start of the public January 6th committee hearings in prime time. Again, that segment will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast loaded with exclusive strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, navigate over to the Politicology show page and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, San Francisco residents voted overwhelmingly to recall progressive district attorney Chesa Boudin. The recall came after a months-long campaign among Democrats over crime, policing, and public safety in the most liberal city in the country. Over the course of the campaign, Boudin attempted to paint the recall effort as a play by Republican billionaires, but the chair of the recall effort was Mary Jung, the former chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. In a statement, Jung said, this election does not mean that San Francisco has drifted to the far right on our approach to criminal justice. San Francisco has been a national beacon for progressive criminal justice reform for decades and will continue to do so with new leadership. Boudin first won office in 2019. It was a narrow victory. He edged out Susie Loftus, who was a former prosecutor backed by Kamala Harris, Dianne Feinstein, Gavin Newsom, and San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Boudin's time in office coincided with a sharp increase in shoplifting, in attacks against Asian Americans, and his approach to prosecutors and prosecutions differed greatly, even from previous progressive DAs in the city. In 2021, more people in San Francisco died from fentanyl overdoses than COVID-19, but Boudin's office didn't secure a single conviction for the opioid dealing. According to the San Francisco Standard, 
Budinsoff has secured three total convictions for possession with intent to distribute drugs last year, two convictions for methamphetamine and one case that involved dealing heroin and cocaine. And we can contrast this to 2018 when then progressive prosecutor George Gascon secured more than 90 drug dealing convictions. Burglaries have increased sharply since Boudin took office in January 2020. They're up 45%. Now that Boudin has been recalled, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, will appoint an interim district attorney until an election can be held. I want to get into what this recall means for Democrats and what it means for the midterms. I noticed, Michael, that you actually wrote about this in your newsletter this week, and you tackled whether or not we can prognosticate or not from the results of this recall. You said, leveraging the rallying cry as the policy or assuming they are the same is potentially deeply problematic. Across a whole host of complex and painful questions, what do we need? What are we promising? What are we committed to? We need a clear path toward a future we all want to be a part of, that we all have a role in, that gives us faith and confidence in where we're going. If the underlying principles or cultural norms necessary for a new policy, I would say in this case, that's Chesa Boudin's approach to crime in San Francisco, to be a real solution, are not alive and active broadly enough in culture and community, new policies may not only feel out of step, but actually make us feel unheard and feel less safe, regardless of whether we are in fact less safe. We may need to establish strong, healthy new habits before we can stop doing things that are not working without unintended consequences that undermine our good intentions and best efforts. Ultimately, the lesson from Boudin's recall may not be one about policy failure, but the failure to do the cultural and community work necessary to transform society while transforming institutions, systems, and policies. So I want to start with you, Michael, anchoring in that perspective on what the hell happened this week in San Francisco. How do you contextualize what's happened there with with that take and the real political implications of this recall for Democrats in the midterms? I mean, I think there's a lot of layers to this right now, right? And and one of the things that I've made sort of a cottage industry of 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 accusing Democrats of misinterpreting elections, uh, it is it is tough to draw, I think it's tough to draw really broad conclusions mid mid cycle in the middle of a primary in the context of all these other things going on um, that are likely to be really durable. I think there, but I do think there's a couple of really clear things happening. The the what I wrote about was really about the sort of disconnect between um, the different types of leadership in social movements and social change, and activism is different than legislation. And I, I've made similar comments about Senator Schumer and getting too focused on sort of performative activism when his role as majority leader demands that he behave differently. Um, And I think in this case, what we see are a basket of very divergent policies potentially getting ahead of even sort of the the sort of cultural landscape of, of a very liberal and progressive city Um, In terms of being prepared to shift how we are addressing crime and safety and not focusing enough on how changing our behavior about prosecution is going to result, what what results it's going to create relative to how safe we feel in the communities that we're in. If we already feel deeply unsafe, decriminalization is likely to contribute to feeling unsafe. 
right? Without a conversation about what we mean by criminal, what's criminalized, what's legal, what's not, what's happening, what's driving that crime and shifting how we think about those things and how we're willing to take responsibility for them in our personal lives and in our communities, this might just feel like sort of like opening a gate to a lot of people. And I think what we need to be careful with is going, oh, this means criminal justice reform doesn't work and is bad. I think, I, I don't think we know exactly yet which of his policies were good or bad. I think it's going to take us time to separate some of that from what's going on in the country as a whole, the discomfort and dissatisfaction of long-term processes that he inherited, right? So some of this may just be timing has a lot to do with the success of a rain dance or failure in this case. And, and then I think there's a whole nother layer, which is sort of the political question, right? And whether what we see here with this recall is partially like a very intense clap back by the Democratic establishment, party establishment in California, not necessarily for being too progressive, but just for not sort of abiding, right? Not, not sort of staying in line and challenging, you know, the, the powers that be in, in a state where the Democratic Party is very complicated. And the sort of powers that be seeing an opportunity to send a message. Because um, like you said, in, the, in some of the setup, he, we're not, they're not talking about the policies being the problem. <laughs> they're not talking about him being even that. I mean, his prosecutorial patterns are, are strange. And I'm not an expert on San Francisco. I'm be a little careful about going too far into the details on who he's pressing, who he's not. But some of his choices about and some of his language about sort of minimizing crime and minimizing other people's pain felt really tone deaf to me. But I wonder how much of this was about sort of pushing back politically it has nothing to do with policy. Yeah, time is a factor. I think that you're right to point that out. There are layers to this. Um, Boudin was elected in 2019, right? In in what many people felt like was a backlash to the Trump era. And so flash forward to now, things start to look a little different. And that's something that we're seeing in places that are not just San Francisco. But when you talk about the clapback, we're not talking about a purple state or a, 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 a city where the pendulum is swinging politically. And Frank, I want to get your take on this. And, and as you think about the Boudin recall and, and some of the election returns this week, especially in California. How, for instance, in San Francisco, how are you factoring in the fact that San Francisco is a very liberal city and the major players of both on both sides of this recall are Democrats? Yeah, I mean, like Michael, I wouldn't um, venture to say that I know much about San Francisco politics. I'm not even a Democrat, so... Um, I know little. What I will say is what it seems to me is um, from a messaging standpoint, and we see this in the polling, right? Crime matters and it has a real impact on people's lives. And if you're not addressing that, whatever policies you may be prescribing, at the end of the day, if people feel that crime is up and we know this in the polling, we actually know it statistically as well across the country, then it's a real problem if you're viewed as being weak on crime, right? We've seen this, let's be clear about something. This is not new, right? This happens, we see this, I don't know, every 10 years, right? I mean, it's helped Republicans. I'll just go back to my lifetime, right? So from the 80s to the 90s, 
we've seen this playbook over and over again. Trump tried to run it in 2020. Um, obviously, COVID was a real problem for him to to shift the narrative to crime. But right now, um, while this is not a Republican Democratic issue in San Francisco, I do think normal people, right, people who are not ideologues on the other side, I think feel a real problem right now. And I think it will be to the Republicans' advantage to play that up. Um, and I think this is just one instance of seeing this in San Francisco. How should they play that up if you were advising candidates ahead of ahead of November? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, it's, I think they have a bit of a, I think they got a lot of riches right now. Um, they could play up inflation or they can play up crime or they can do both. And I think both are highly effective. They impact people's lives on a daily basis. Whether or not that's actually true from a perception standpoint for voters, it really is true. And so it gives um, Republicans a real opportunity um, in competitive races, even in races that are in House races where it may be um, traditionally fairly Democratic. I think it could open up the door where you could see a 2010, 2014 type wave. Um, these issues just set up really well, um, A, for Republicans and B, for the party out of power. And so I think um, both those issues are ripe for Republican attack. And I'm sure you're already seeing it. I don't live in a swing district, so I haven't seen them, but I'm sure it's occurring. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about here is is really how state and local policies, you know, in this case, San Francisco's, but on, on criminal justice reform, whatever, how those policies translate to people's perceived daily way of life. And how that perceived daily way of life in turn translates to our politics. Uh, and, sorry, but to Michael's point, like I do think the policy is different, right? So I think criminal justice reform is still, I don't think that's the problem, right? I think there, I think if you really dove deep with voters, I think there's still appetite for criminal justice reform. That's separate in a voter's mind to, hey, is my car safe on the street? Is my kid safe going to school? Right? Those are a separate thing than how does our justice system deal with folks on a level case? And I think that's the difference right now. And I think it's just a lot, let's just be really clear. You guys know this. Um, it's a lot easier to run ads on crime than it is on criminal justice reform. I think that's actually just to jump in on one of the things that Frank said a couple times, I think is right, is that th that last sentence is right on. And we've seen that that pattern over lots and lots of cycles. We said it was really common in the 80s and in the 90s. Um, but I also think there's a real, there's a danger to some of that is how we, if people are feeling unsafe or people are anxious, and we know that that is true about a wide swaths of, of almost everybody I talk to, Right now, given the last couple of years that we've gone through and the sort of like relentlessness of of crisis around us, um, when people are anxious and feeling unsafe, they're easy to scare because they're already scared. And how we message about safety and what will make us safe can be can certainly be electorally opportunistic. But I think we got to be really careful about how that bleeds into what policy choices get made and what conclusions we want to draw 
socially and at a community level about our neighbors and the people around us and the kinds of communities we want to live in. Um, because I think if we push really, we're going to get back, this is going to come back around in some of the other topics, but like, if we, if we, if we anchor so heavily on the world is dark and scary, regardless of whether it is in fact dark or scary, we start, it starts to becoming a self-fulfilling problem and we start to create an inability to connect across in groups and out groups. We create an inability to function as a community. We create an inability to even have a conversation about something systemic like criminal justice reform because we're living in a world where we need to batten down the hatches. And I think while crime and violence has been up in some places, it is, we also have to be really careful about what we do with this as a narrative question like and what the strategy that we are using to win leads us to in terms of, you know, what do we end up winning? Uh, where, where does that put us um, uh, relative to what needs to happen to make our communities safer? Yeah, I wish, Michael, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I will just say personally, like, yeah, I don't, I, I would hate to see a bunch of ads that demonize a group of people for the purpose of winning. But let's just be clear. Operatives on both sides, though, I, I think it's fair to say that Republicans have a better track record of doing this. They're oh, gonna we're going to see we're going to see right. Willie Horton at we're going to see Willie Horton ads all over the place in this cycle. And that's part of what I'm cautioning about of like is how do we how do we respond to that more broadly as a country and as at, at each community level and each sort of like widening circle about what that where that leads us. Right. Because that that that, you know, what I'm talking, I'm referring to this very famous ad from the Dukakis campaign back in 88 that really, really tor the torpedoes Dukakis's campaign, along with the like goofy photo of him in the tank uh, or it just looked like a child. Um, but both of these things set up this this dynamic that led to this sort of like entire like it all through the 90s and even in, like led to Democrats. And President Clinton buying into the super predator myth and all this other stuff that created a really long track record of overcriminalization of deeply racist judicial uh, uh, criminal justice processes that we're still recovering from and we're not we haven't recovered from. And so I don't want to get on another decade long, two decade long swale of just continuing to dig holes underneath our ability to live in community with each other. Yeah. In the, in the kind of theme of the world is dark and scary and the theme of perception is reality. There was um, some data released this week that, that kind of went against what we might believe when we think of what are the most dangerous or safest places in the country. For instance, it found that Boston and New York are the two safest cities in the country by many measures, though for everyone, and we've talked about it on, on politicology before, for everyone following the New York mayoral race, you would you might assume that New York is back to pre-Giuliani 1980s New York. Um, so so you're you're reminding us, both of you are reminding us of of the way in which how people are perceiving their daily lives doesn't even doesn't even have to be what is what is actually happening. And one thing that people are perceiving, and and I I want to shift a little now 
to talk about um, the perception of, of, of gun violence um, and, and how that is translating. Um, there's a piece this week by Van Jones and Carl Day that was published on CNN. And it was about how, how the media and, and political leaders writ large need to anchor to begin to expand the conversations about gun violence to talk about those daily realities of gun violence in addition to mass shootings, right? How to, how to translate the gun issue, the gun safety mandate. Mass shootings are also daily <laughs> Touche. Um, but, but as this piece noted last weekend in Philadelphia, several gunmen opened fire on a crowded section of South Street. That left two bystanders and a suspect dead and wounded 11 others. The weekend before that, just staying with Philadelphia, there were um, at least three shootings that wouldn't qualify as mass shootings, but left four people dead, including a nine-year-old boy, a 19-year-old man, a 19-year-old woman who was 34 weeks pregnant. And Jones and Day in this piece are clear that they're advocating for the same solutions that would reduce mass shootings uh, to reduce the daily toll of, of gun violence. I think you're alluding to that a little bit with that, with that comment. So, you know, let's start with you, Michael. How are you thinking as we think about this broader perception of how we're thinking about daily life, how we're thinking about daily life ahead of the midterms, but then really honing in on whether there's a policy change here that we could get to, how are you thinking about the dual focus that Jones and Day suggest we embrace in that in that piece that that they're advocating for? I think decoupling the different issues and di- the different types of gun violence is actually a really important part of this conversation because there isn't a policy, there isn't there also isn't a problem a crisis. There also isn't a gun culture, right? We have several social and safety crises in America that are made more lethal by other elements of our culture, including our cultures, plural, around guns. And we tend to see this as in this sort of binary terms of guns or not. And it's like founder Second Amendment culture and, um, you know, uh, common sense gun reform. Like there are these two binary sort of edges neither of which, which are particularly grounded in reality anymore, if they ever were, and, and sort of bl- blend and average all the different types of challenges that we're talking about in a way that make you know, obvious that a single policy isn't going to solve that average problem because that average isn't real. So we have a crisis around sort of anxiety and mental health. We have crises around domestic violence. We have lots of crises related to sort of deprivation and opportunity and fear of the future. There's a whole challenge set of challenges around deaths of despair. Each of these things is made more dangerous because of the wild and increasing availability of guns, along with the gun cultures that go with them. And one of those cultures is this sort of like founder Second Amendment centric culture. But one of them is also the sort of fetishization of tactical power. Um, particularly amongst sort of like disempowered, sort of aggrieved white men. Uh, but there's a totally different culture of, of gun culture in urban and like black communities in a city, right? And the, those cultures are distinct. Each one of them makes us less safe. In each case, more guns make us less safe. And 
So I think pulling them apart and talking about mental health in the context of people struggling and most gun deaths are still suicides in America and dealing with mental health and access to weapons when people are in crisis. And that may be red flag law. That may be now that red flag law may also catch some people, disturbed people who are a combination of all of these problems, mental health, misogyny and domestic violence, deprivation, despair, fear of the future and a tactical sort of fetish all combined into an 18-year-old kid who's disturbed and walks into a school with an AR-15, right? Like each of these things needs to be decoupled and understood and addressed in a way that is sort of kind and oriented toward safety and oriented toward a world in which we don't, aren't afraid to go to the grocery store and our children aren't, we're not, we aren't sort of devolving into a conversation where maybe we need to teach battlefield medic medicine to children. I'm an EMT. Like, I don't want children to have to learn how gun, why gunshot wounds are so dangerous and why velocity matters in terms of the size, internal wounds that come from gunshots. I do not want children knowing these things. They don't need to know these things. That's not the answer. This is not, to me, an acceptable consequence of a fundamental constitutional right. It is a totally unacceptable consequence of a, his, of a history and arc and culture that has sort of perverted a bunch of things and put us in a place where we live in a pretty, what feels like a deeply unsafe culture. And how it feels is matters, right? And, and to your point around the reality between safety and fear and crime and the narrative of, of and sort of the visibility of mass shootings contributes to the sort of the sense of, of fear and frustration, you mentioned opioids in the same way that wildly available fentanyl being included and cut into other drugs makes drugs that usually don't create overdoses more dangerous, right? That's part of what is contributing to what we're seeing with opioid. The opioid epidemic is stronger drugs that are more addictive, killing people that they don't usually OD from that's true with guns too. And I'm not saying that gun ref- that, that changing access and rights around access to weapons fixes culture, but it may make some of the cultural conflicts we're dealing with less dangerous while we address the underlying causes that we need to be talking about or society isn't going to get healthier. We aren't going to get safer. We aren't going to address why do we feel unsafe? Why are other people so dangerous for us right now? And there's a lot of re- that, that that's a long, deep well. <laughs> but one of them, we just it, this is the, to the to Frank's point before about sort of the like the opportunity to take advantage of some of this. One of the challenges of what we're going through is we've just been through a two year period. We're still in it. A hundred thousand people in America got COVID yesterday. Um, where other people are in fact dangerous to me. We are living in a world <laughs> where we we are worried about. You know, endangering each other's public health. And so we are sort of overly attuned to that sort of other risk already. And so taking steps right now, even if they're temporary, to lower the temperature and lethality of these crises has to be part of the equation around how we then address the crises themselves. Thinking about that, thinking about those themes of safety, thinking about 
short-term, long-term. Frank, I, I want to bring you into this before we move on. How do you think that grounding arguments for gun control now in in Congress, down the road this summer, in campaign speeches, how do we anchor or how do you see sort of grounding arguments for gun control as as a means to stop the rise in violent crime, to stop people feeling unsafe? How do you see that impacting our our politics writ large? Is is there something that is there something that can happen this year? What's what's gonna happen, Frank? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so from a congressional federal policy standpoint, I would be I mean, I will be shocked if anything meaningful comes out of the House or the Senate. But the truth is, politically, regardless of what you may see in the polling, this is not a particularly winning issue for Democrats. Um, and for a couple reasons. One is that if you really dive into the polling, the gun stuff gets mixed in with the crime stuff a lot. And so I don't think the polling on the gun control stuff is as strong as I think folks want it to be. And then I think the second thing is, is people know they can't articulate it the way Michael articulates it, but I think people know that it isn't simple, that there isn't just like some law that gets passed tomorrow that would pass the, you know, congressional test or a constitutional test for that matter, that somehow makes all this better. I think people know that like citizens are smart, right? They, you know, they may not articulate it well, but deep down they're pretty astute. And so I don't think this is a particularly good issue for the general election. It, it may be great in Democratic primaries, but I don't think when we hit October, November, if you're running on, on you know, somehow Congress is going to do something to fix this I don't see that as um, an effective message. Part of why that's true is no one, no one, no one, literally, I'm, I'm very allergic to sentences that start with everyone or no one, but basically no one thinks Congress is a hero right now. Like that's like, that's not, a, that's not a winning narrative. Um, but to your point about anchoring in a, a sort of safety, it, it, what you said in the last segment was crime is an opportunity for Republicans, then Democrats anchoring hard on guns and safety and violence is the same is anchoring in the strength of Republicans. Right. And so I, from a, from a, so just from a tactical perspective, right. You're like living in a box that you probably aren't going to win in. And, and so while I think there are things that we need to do, um, I, I am not super optimistic in the short run that, that we're going to see a lot of change. And I think it has to do with a lot of the same sort of unhealthy political dynamics that show up in lots of issues around sort of the like sort of narrow sort of minority power inside the like anti-democratic features of our Republic and how those things are getting leveraged in a bunch of different ways. We'll, we will talk about this again when we talk about January 6th and the hearings. Yeah, that's really well put. Let's move on. Speaking of subjects to which everyone agrees there is no solution, let's return to one of our favorite subjects that is the subject of Facebook. 
Earlier this week, former Chief Technology Officer of the United States, Megan Smith, was speaking at a conference in Washington at the 2022 Social Innovation Summit, and she declared, Facebook destroyed democracy. Fortune magazine reported that Smith's comment was likely a reference to misinformation spread on Facebook when the platform became the platform du jour um, during the 2016 presidential election and in the lead up to the January 6th attack. Smith's comments drew laughter from the crowd, but I do want to take a look at this comment in the context of some other big Facebook news that we got in the last week. And that news is that Facebook's longtime COO, Sheryl Sandberg, announced that she's stepping down as Mark Zuckerberg's number two after 14 years in the role. Uh, Sandberg joined Facebook in 2008, leaving a high-powered job at Google to join the social media giant. And although there has been some uh, lore about Sandberg as though she sort of had no idea what was going on with the internet when she joined Facebook, she talks about how when she met Zuckerberg, she thought... Facebook was like a, the internet was a funny place where people went and some looked at memes. She herself really had already been a pioneer uh, before joining Facebook when she was at Google. She was the person who really turned people like Larry Page and Sergey Brin into billionaires. Um, she pioneered Google's advertising uh, model and and helped them throw out the window a former Google theme of don't be evil. She she helped them embrace their perhaps not evil, but inner capitalists in transforming their their ad uh, business. She had been chief of staff to Treasury Secretary Larry Summers during the Clinton administration and really had cemented her position in Silicon Valley well before she joined Facebook. When she joined Facebook in 2008, Mark Zuckerberg was 23 years old. So Sandberg was the literal and metaphorical adult in the room, and she made quick work of developing Facebook's advertising business. Facebook's revenue grew from $153 million in 2007 to $27.6 billion, most of that coming from ads. Platformers Casey Newton said, for half a decade, fast-growing startups would talk openly about, quote, finding a Cheryl to help them grow and mature. Sandberg was really the blueprint. But she may no longer be that Silicon Valley model anymore. A big part of her portfolio came under really intense scrutiny after 2016. She had overseen the company's policy and security team. And we know that that Facebook was used to spread misinformation during that election. The New York Times reported that her team was aware of those issues, that they ignored them, and that they delayed a public response. In 2018, Facebook saw a major privacy scandal involving Cambridge Analytica. Sandberg was overseeing the PR team, and she was held responsible for the fallout and the response to the scandal. Since then, many critics have characterized Sandberg as Facebook's chief defender of data abuses, of cozying up to Donald Trump, more recently of things like Instagram's impact on teenage girls. So... Let's start with Megan Smith's comments. And I think it's kind of interesting that both of you have have been really at, at the helms of, of campaigns over several cycles, 2008, 2012, 2016. And 2008 was one of the first election cycles where we really saw Facebook 
becoming becoming dominant. Um, but I think we should start by tracking back because Frank, you were uh, running a campaign in in 2016, um, which is when the the love for Facebook began to kind of began to kind of fall apart. Um, do you agree with Megan Smith? Do you think Facebook has killed democracy? How should we be thinking about the role it's played? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly played a negative role in our politics. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Now, destroying democracy is a whole different level. And she's at a conference and she's, you know, speaking off the cuff. Uh, I think that's a little, that's a, a little too far for me. I think we, first off, I don't think democracy is dead. Um, now, we may be on the downward slope, um, so I don't think it killed democracy. I think it it brought out some of the worst things in our politics and amplified it at a level that people like me before 2015 hadn't really seen. Um, we had kind of seen it on the edges, but we did not see it. Um, I surely did not see it. So when I think about the way I thought about the, the 2015-2016 primary, you know, Facebook was a tool, and um, but I'll be honest, I didn't understand its full power and in real time didn't see it. And really, it's not until I've gone back and really studied and read about what was going on to fully appreciate the extent that that one, and I know it's large, but it's one tool in an arsenal of, of tools that we have to, to run and win campaigns, what a massive role it played, both in the primary and obviously in the general election. This is an ongoing debate between me and Ron because I tend to think of Facebook as being a reflection of deeper ills, and and you know Ron and and Molly McHugh um, and others who are frequently on the roundup have a have a different perception. Michael, I wonder where you come down on this and and how you see it. So I, I think villainizing facebook as as the as the villain is um an over a wild oversimplification i think what frank said about it sort of amplifying some of our worst instincts and contributing to sort of a a like a d a deconnecting uh effect on on social groups and a siloing of people's experiences is 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 inarguable those things are are definitive consequences of of the way the platform is designed, um, but I think it is part of a larger modern media environment where we, how we get information, how we tell stories, how we build community that is deeply unhealthy, and uh, the the dynamics that make Facebook unhealthy are not dissimilar from other dynamics and other systems: Twitter, Reddit, Google, YouTube. A lot of these other places sort of function on a lot of the same mechanics and are driven by a lot of the same business models, which is why I think Cheryl is often villainized also unfairly. And we'll come back to that in a second in some ways as like the problem at Facebook because her rise and her effect on Facebook is so associated with their sort of monetization engine of, you know, a platform that was pure before that. It's not true. That's a, that's also a myth. So I do think that, that Facebook puts a lot of negative pressure on society. I also think it reflects a culture, a business culture, a venture capital culture, an innovation culture that is very comfortable 
pop, uh, uh, commonizing the, the, the costs and the unintended consequences of things while privatizing the benefits. And we see that in all kinds of industries, all kinds of innovation. And there, there's a there's a game theory game called commonized cost, privatized profits. That is the fund, like one of the building blocks of, of how the innovation economy has worked over the last couple of decades. And the reason I joked at the beginning of this segment about like, we know how to fix this is we do because Humans design these systems to behave a certain way, to maximize a certain kind of engagement, to maximize a certain kind of attention inventory. And so we play into the things that drive that. If we were willing publicly to have a conversation about what we wanted from greater connectivity and how we wanted a public sphere to function, and we demanded that tools take responsibility for their community effects, and they started to be optimized around community differently. Super complicated, but if we had a different conversation about what we were geared for and what we were designing for, these systems would work differently. I think they're still going to make lots of money, right? Like these are very smart, thoughtful, creative people. Like you, you can't as as on the one hand, if you're Facebook and Google, say we're the smartest people in the world, leave us alone, we'll solve all the problems, and then say this is too hard to solve. You got to pick one. You either got to be that arrogant or that like you know, <laughs> uh, falsely humble. Uh, and I, I think these, these, the people you see this from the people who are doing the building at these companies, that they know how to fix them and change them. And they say so often and are often shouted down because of the economic pressure around publicly traded companies and other kinds of stuff. And so the idea that we don't know how to fix these is total bullshit. We know exactly how to start making these systems healthier. And we're not willing to do it. Now, What to your point, Lucy, about what this reflects in culture, there's an economic culture, there's a business culture, there's an innovation, there's a whole bunch of cultures, plural again, intersecting in this issue. And it may be the case that we're going to need a public declaration around principles and values. And that may need to be expressed as regulation in order to, to start turning the, the attention of our innovation in healthier directions. Like entrepreneurs and designers want constraints. They're not gonna stop being creative because they're being told like, hey, go that way. Like they're, th that's just not true. Now, is it possible that some of those business models are in, in sort of around the edges less profitable than like purely extractive exploitative things that Facebook does? Maybe, but I'm fine with that for one. Two, they're already making these decisions, right? The point you made before about the health and safety team, one of the most important things that came out of the latest whistleblower releases was that when it comes to misinformation, Facebook is entirely reactive. They do nothing proactive. And so this idea that they have their thumb on something is completely untrue. Um, there are biases built into the algorithms. So there is, there is bias at work and that can be ideological or racial or class-based. All kinds of things are built into the, into the underlying assumptions of the math. But at, a, at the level of, is this misinformation or not? Facebook is entirely reliant on people saying, like reporting stuff. And then they only have the capacity for, to, to deal with 5% of reports. 5%. That's 100% of profit discussion. They made $10 billion last quarter. Do 100% of them and make $9 billion. 
Like it's just, there, there is a piece of this that is just greed and they know they can get away with it. And so they get away with it and they make more money. Now it's not, I don't want the, the soundbite to this and like the way that this was printed by fortune shows how this ill health of information spreads all over. Megan, who I know, and is a very thoughtful person, said this, if you read through the whole transcript as like an aside and another part of the conversation, it was taken out of context, made the headline because guess what that does for fortune? More attention, more money, more, right? Like Clicks driven the, via Facebook. <laughs> yeah, like, right. And so the, the, even the way that we frame, that, that fortune frame, we framed this, you know, with this kind of like, Sexy sound right. Like the, is, is, is emblematic of this larger question around our, our information systems are not tuned to inform. And when systems are designed for attention and speed, they're only going to kind of accidentally or occasionally bump into truth. And so, and only when those things coincide. And so we got to be thoughtful about what do we think we're getting out of systems that aren't designed to inform us. You're right that the system is um, responsive, right, and and that the that that Facebook in and of itself is is I think that stat about what percentage of reports they can respond to is really really interesting, um, and it makes sense in the broader context of something that is also easy to forget, which is that end users of Facebook, you know, like your grandma who logs on to post photos of her fish tank or, you know, your, your, you follow my grandma, (laughs) your long lost best friend whose life you feel like you're really well attuned to because she posts memes every day. Those are actually not Facebook's customers. Facebook's customers are advertisers, and and we end users of Facebook, we are are the product. Um, you know, the 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 legacy of Sheryl Sandberg really is pioneering this model of advertising revenue that has become the dominant business model of of companies like Facebook. And we run into challenges when those ads, those automated ads start being intertwined with our politics. So I wonder, Frank, you know, as a a person who's also studied this, how should we think about how that model, um, how should we think about how that model of automated ads is shaping our politics, not just elections, not just policymaking, not just, you know, like lobbying outcomes or electoral outcomes, but our collected lives and, and the, the, interwoven fabric of our culture and our politics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think there's a couple things to unpack here, right? I think one is there's a lot of things Facebook can do, should have done, should be doing that they're probably not doing. Um, That's very clear. There's, to Michael's point, there's a lot of smart people there. They know they can fix some of these problems. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is this technology has really been around less than 20 years. And so what I'm, a lot of the concern I have from a policy standpoint is um, the federal government is not well situated to really understand the right way to regulate this industry. I think this was true in 2001. I still think it's true today. And so there's still time here to to get policymakers um, up to speed and think through 
not just the Facebook problem, but Lucy, to your point, this business model problem, right? So if we just say this is about Facebook, we're kind of missing this for a much bigger problem, right? And so that's a big part of what we need to handle is, is how, do we, how do we deal with this from a, a business model? The other side of this is, I think from an education standpoint, there's a whole set of this that we need to be thinking about for our kids, whether they're um, in elementary school all the way through graduate school, right? We really need to start thinking about how do we talk to kids and educate them about what the internet is and what these platforms do. That's not in our curriculum right now. And we really need to do that. And then the last piece is, I think there's a board component here. There's a governance component that says, you know, this is a publicly traded um, company. As a fiduciary, you have responsibility. And so I don't think boards have done a particularly good job of doing this. So Cheryl still being on the board means she's still going to have oversight here. And I don't think boards have done a particularly good job of this in Silicon Valley. But let's be clear, that's true whether it's Silicon Valley or any other industry, right? The board at Boeing clearly hasn't done a particularly effective job of oversight. So those are the components I would think about beyond just simply pinpointing this on Facebook, though obviously they're um, the behemoth in this right now. I think that the need to widen the lens is true. And I think that's also true in time. What you said about the last 20 years is true, but Facebook didn't invent paid ads on the internet. Uh, and the attention economy didn't start with the internet either. We've been paying for information. Like there's been an indirect revenue model associated with information for a very long time. And who paid and who was the customer and how were certain types of information subsidized in culture shift, has shifted dramatically over time, starting with like Gutenberg in the 15th century. And so this, 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 isn't, this is an old problem about like how we understand the world and how we get more information, who has access, who has the right to publish, who has access to distribution. The, the, what we've seen from social tools is the like the amp, the wild exp exponentiation of speed and sort of access to tools that can be dangerous um, if sort of misinterpreted and misused. I think Frank's point about our individual responsibility in this is real, that, that we, how we understand what we consume is something that if we want more power to author and express ourselves and more voices are, are alive in a genuinely broad, genuinely diverse, pluralistic society, multiracial, multigenerational, all things. Um, we also need to take responsibility for being better at discernment. Now, these tools intentionally take advantage of the cognitive overload we live in and make it hard to discern. So we need help on the technology side. We need help on the content side. We need to help ourselves and we need help on the institutional side. Like all four of these things need to get leveraged in this much broader view of the scope of the problem, which is where I think narrowing in on Facebook or Cheryl um, is unfair. And I think Cheryl's villainization also reflects like a, the wild misogyny of Silicon Valley because she is in a similar role in some ways to Eric Schmidt's role coming into Google who was doing highly targeted click-based ads, indirect revenue on search long before Facebook started monetizing their feed. 
or the uh, the wall, and uh, we don't talk about Eric the way we talk about Cheryl, and we don't talk about Mark. Like we tend to talk about Mark as this sort of mad genius, but we tend to attach like the Rohingya genocide to Cheryl, yeah. and that she's got plenty of responsibility. She was in charge of a massive company. She has lots of power and control there. She was wildly influential. But the way that sort of intent is attached differently to innovators like Elon Musk, who I think the the questionable like myth around figures like that is not helping us think about how how innovation can actually help humanity and sort of misappropriating cost, risk, intent, blame in this is deeply reflective of, of a, a culture in the Valley that's really unhealthy. That's a, that's a really helpful frame. And, and I think we can't, we won't, we won't solve this behemoth uh, in this segment, this behemoth of a problem, but, but both points you made, including about thinking about um, being, having individual responsibility with how we interact with these platforms and, and our collective role as stakeholders is, is a helpful frame. Let's talk Saudi Arabia. Last week, the White House announced that Joe Biden has made plans to travel to Saudi Arabia later this month as he works to lower gas prices in the U.S. and probably along the way further isolate Russia. On the 2020 campaign trail, Joe Biden vowed to make Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah, end quote, for the country's role in the assassination of dissenter and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. But during his upcoming trip, Biden will meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was responsible for the assassination and really brutal dismemberment of Khashoggi, according to an intelligence report by the Biden administration released last year. Peter Baker and Ben Hubbard at the New York Times described this upcoming trip as a, quote, triumph of realpolitik over moral outrage. What should we make of Biden's decision to go to Saudi how do you think we should be thinking about the decision to build a relationship with an autocratic country like Saudi Arabia as part of a strategy to stop an, an autocrat like Putin from waging war in Ukraine? Frank, why don't we we start with you? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. To me, this is a no-brainer. I mean, um, this is just part of U.S. foreign policy, has been for a long time. Um, we don't have to like everything that the Saudis do or other nations do, but um, we play a critical role in this world. And our president is our foremost ambassador. And so, yeah, this is something he needs to do. I think he might have regretted what he said before. Um, but at the end of the day, um, interaction with the Saudis is going to happen. And they play an important role. Um, both domestically as, as we think about gas prices, but they play an important role with what's going on in Ukraine. And so the president needs to do this. It's the right thing to do. I realize he's going to take um, a plenty of hits, um, maybe from both sides on this one. But at the end of the day, this is just happens, right? And let, let's be clear, he's not the first president to say that I'm not going to go do something and then end up having to do it. That's just kind of part of how we live in this world. And I think we all accept that this is just part of how this works. I'm very pleased um, that he's doing this. It's time 
that we make sure that we have a stable relationship with the Saudis, especially given what's going on um, in Europe right now. You know, I, I I hear what you're saying. I would say that in foreign policy, there are some good looks and there are some bad looks. And the Biden administration has had a range of looks, um, including in in an earlier chapter of this conflict in Ukraine with uh, members of the administration traveling to Venezuela to negotiate with uh, another uh, autocratic regime um, in, in part of this kind of uh, um, puzzle-making attempt to patchwork a, a whole cloth approach that both balances, say, our desire for cheap and affordable oil with also not accidentally or perhaps quite quite consciously supporting brutal dictatorships. So I, I, I think that we when we think about democracy being under threat across the globe, I, I wonder, understanding political realities, Michael, how do we reconcile the fight to preserve democracy globally and uh, the America's standing in the world as a protector and promoter of democracy with the decision, let's just face it, to normalize relationships with authoritarians. I think to some degree, you're both right about the, the sort of debate, like Frank, what you're saying sort of reminded me a little bit of the you, can, you campaign in poetry and, and you govern in prose old quip of, um, you know, I, I'm reminded of the preconditions debate that happened back in the primaries in 2007 in the Democratic primary about talking to other world leaders about preconditions and what are like, I remember when things like that, that were that substantive used to be like controversial. Um, and that wouldn't that be nice? Um, I, I do, we, you know, we don't get to choose who's in charge in other countries. And uh, but we do get to decide, to, to Lucy's point, how we engage with them as members of a world that we share and what we talk about and how that engagement looks and how we hold uh, allies and, and enemies to account. And I think the Venezuela example is interesting because in that case, I don't think President Biden sat down with Maduro. Like that's not how that went. Right. And sitting down with MBS is not a requirement for normalizing or trying to like influence and bring move Saudi Arabia in the direction of more sort of um, lowercase l liberal um, sort of democratic uh, nor cultural norms um, by continuing to engage with them rather than isolate them. Um, I mean, I think the, the 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 other piece of this is trying to learn from our own very ineffective past around um sort of ordering which which autocrat and dictator is the worst and like stacking the better autocrats against the worst autocrat like that's not worked that well for us in history i I think we we need to be clear-eyed about and honest about what it is that we are trying to prioritize here And and it is complicated and there's a lot of things at work I mean, I, I do think ultimately right now there's a, there's a domestic um, inflation and energy cost problem that is hurting the people. Um, I live in a rural county where you drive a lot and you use a lot of gas and diesel for farm equipment and life's gotten expensive here. 
uh, in lots of ways. And, uh, per, but we can't be about human rights when we're flush and not about human rights when we are, th- when we're struggling. Like that's just, it, it's, it reminds me a little bit of like the ESG conversation in corporate governance in America. It's like ESG is really popular when the economy is booming and no one talks about sustainability when, when profits are under pressure. And I think this is again reflective of a broader question conversation about the kind of growth that is required of the way we have structured our economy demands certain trade-offs that are just unpal morally unpalatable. And I think if we are going to be morally consistent, we're going to have to address some of those other underlying needs. And it speaks to questions about not just energy independence, for instance, but also sort of the the very idea of like equilibrium and sustainability as something we're designing for in our economy. And there's a lot of pressure right now on globalization and a lot of conversation about deglobalization in the context of supply chains and COVID and a bunch of other stuff. And I think it plays in, creates an opportunity for us to think about leadership on an international stage not being a function of exploitation and cap- and sort of the capitalization of uh, of assets and commodities, but as being able to sort of deprioritize those things for the need for sort of moral and community leadership that we need to stay in. Like, and I to to Frank's point, like we probably need to be having a conversation with the Saudis, but that conversation probably also needs to be reflective of like OPEC's a cartel. Like, and we can't, we, we like how, how honest are, if we're going to be an honest conversation and the point is we have to be present for the things that are true for us, then we've got to be present for them. We can't step into this, like, well, we have to have this conversation and then do this like kabuki dance. That's totally dishonest. Like that, if we're going to be there, we got to be there and like really be there and really lead and not fake it. And that's what we want to see from uh, like a real engagement with this country. Yeah, Michael, you're right. I think this is the problem in the front end, right? That's why we sh- we've got to be thoughtful about what we say on the front end, because then it puts us in this position where we have to go do a big song and dance. Right. And so we, I know it's not easy um, and it's really tricky in America because of the administration's turnovers that we get every four and eight years, right? That the Saudis don't have this problem, right? The Chinese don't have this problem. The Russians don't have this problem. We have this problem. And so administrations need to be really thoughtful on the front end to think through that they got to be here for four, eight years. And so let's be thoughtful about making sure that we're setting the stage for good diplomacy. And I don't, I think in this instance, I think this backfired. I think the short-termism is true, but it's also that's also a consequence of really, really weak parties that don't have, no one has a longer lens. Speaking of some themes that have come up throughout the roundup today, including themes around morality, themes around who is and who isn't a, a stakeholder in in these hard issues, I, I want to conclude by taking us in a direction that may be surprising, which is to golf. (laughs) So in the backdrop of the announcement of Biden's trip, it is coming right before the launch of a new 
Saudi-backed golf series called Live. Um, this is rocking golf world. And household names like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson are going to leave the PGA Tour to join this new golf tour, which is kicking off this week. Um, Tiger Woods uh, is reportedly turned down a kind of mind-blowing sum, but but there's a real effort to to build a golf tour that really is globally competitive with the PGA. The Live Series is going to feature eight tournaments with a total of $255 million in prize money. But according to the Washington Post, the tour has no international television contract for reasons that probably are not surprising. The money to support the tour comes from the Public Investment Fund, which is a sovereign wealth fund based in Saudi Arabia. But Mohammed bin Salman serves as the chairman of this group. This is not a moneymaker for the Saudis. So there's a question here about what the goal is. So so quickly, but before we conclude, I, I do want to know how you're both thinking about the use of sports to make the Saudi regime more palatable. And, and kind of thinking out loud here, uh, this has come up a lot throughout our discussion today, but but I, but I wonder what you think our collective cultural duty is around how we do or don't support um, tours like this, how we do or don't consume uh, products like this, in this case, the, this golf tour, um, what the responsibility is of non-political actors, but people with influence, people like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson, who have decided to go all in on this in contrast to say someone like Tiger Woods who is taking a pass. I, I just, I want to quickly get both of your reactions to this. Slavy, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I think first off, sports are a huge part of global culture everywhere because joy is a huge part of culture. And like the things that we do for fun and entertainment are, are, are huge parts of our lives. And athletes, um, as the footprint, cultural footprint of sports and athletes continues to increase, have an enormous amount of, I think, social responsibility around how they behave, the pressure and the, the, what they're able to do with the platforms that they create out of their hard work and excellence and luck and all the other things that go into being a pro athlete. Um, I think this is true of, of all sports. I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, this Saudi government buying cultural relevance, relevance and sort of PR for $225 million PR campaign. And that's not that much money to that. Oh, it's, it's going to be not, a lot more than that. That's just yeah, the prize that's money. That's just the prize money. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 about, it's like half a billion dollars per season. And, and it's a lot more money than the PGA, right? The tournaments have you know twice as much prize money as the Masters. And there's guaranteed money for the players. And so as a pure economic choice, there's a lot more money to be had if you win, but there's also a lot more money to be had if you lose in this new in this new tour. And so, as a pure economic decision for the players, that um, the, the the economics are, are 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 relatively simple at a prize money level, but they're not at all simple when you start factoring in all the sort of social components and other forms of revenue, but also just where who's paying you. Like, what are you comfortable, who are you comfortable working for? And the idea that they can, that a lot of the athletes have tried to essentially like decouple the sort of social, political, human rights questions about basically where's the money coming from 
from this sort of like, oh, this is just like a sport. This is just what's best for my family. This is just like trying to like wrap like a nice package around like, uh, I'm just making a, I'm just making an economic decision, right? Like it's kind of like the joke they make on Sports Center when like people don't try to, you know, take a charge and they're making an economic decision because they don't want to get hurt, right? Like it's not that simple. It's just not. And decoupling it is dishonest. I think Rory McIlroy has been a really nice, very thoughtful voice about this. He had an a, uh, an interview yesterday that I think is worth worth really worth listening to, where he talks about decisions in our lives that are made just for money usually don't end up working out the way we want and expect them to and have consequences for our senses of self and family and soul that we often don't see coming. And he was talking about himself. He said, I have made choices in my own career that were just about money that it universally ended up not being good for me or my family. And I think that willingness to engage the question that way is really nice leadership from him. I'm really, yeah. I was really impressed by what he said yesterday. Frank, I want to give you the last word on this. How are you thinking about this? Yeah, so I agree with Michael. I think um, just to say these are purely business decisions for these guys is is a little disingenuous. However, let's be clear about a couple of things. One is the PGA Tour is by far the gold standard, but the reason the PGA Tour is the gold standard is because of Tiger Woods. Right. So if you go back pre-1997, right, you know, I'm watching golf, but like no one's watching golf. So if the Saudis think that they're just like gonna take over the golf world because they can write the biggest check, that's not how golf worked, right? The money for golf came after Tiger Woods. Not it's not because of the money, it was because of Woods. And so unless they can capture somebody who can turn televisions from the NFL or the NBA, Major League Baseball, or in most of the world from um, soccer, like, I don't think this is that big of a deal. If if Justin, you know, if these guys want to go play in that league, fine. I I mean, it doesn't, to me, this is not that big of a deal because at the end of the day, until this sport gets another Tiger Woods, it just doesn't have the ratings that I think necessitates all of us talking about it. No, no offense to the question. That's really that's really interesting. You are you are taking us down a field where my complete lack of of <laughs> knowledge about golf eludes me. I didn't realize this it, was a sports ball podcast. It's a sport, it's sports ball. You think it won't be a big deal, Frank, because you think it just won't be effective at getting at people, sort of getting people to the in the yeah. way that the Saudis think. Yeah, like when we look at the golf ratings, like it is just night and day when Woods is in a tournament and not. So like there's a couple guys who can move the needle. Rory can kind of move the needle once in a while. If, if, you, if on a Sunday, he's but up does, there. Doesn't it normalize the Saudis? I mean, doesn't it begin to normalize the Saudis culturally? I mean, I think it does. I mean, but we but, can bring but it to Frank, Real to Housewives, um, not the Saudis, but, you know, Real Housewives of Dubai, right? Is Bravo normalizing? I mean, <laughs> is yeah, it if culture? There's yes. enough, if there's not enough eyeballs on it, then it's not, it doesn't. Yeah, the question is dosage, right? The question is dosage. So, like, does this, is, is this a, like an effort at normalization? Yes. How big an effort of norm, at normalization is it? I think Frank's saying not very big. I think it's it could end up being bigger than we think partially just because I spent a lot of time on sports center talking about this <laughs> and like <laughs> the conversation about it right now is actually substantial. Like we're talking about this on a political podcast. So like 
the, the controversy is creating some dosage and ripples around this that are actually not in favor of, I think, the intentions of what the Saudis are doing investing in this. But it's not going to look the World Cup is about to happen in Qatar in November. Like, that's what billions of people will be focusing their sort of like like sports and attention and cultural attention on is like, can Messi get a World Cup before he retires? The number of people who care about that question outpaces the like, who the fuck is Dustin Johnson question by like several orders of magnitude. In a year and a half and two years, right, what's what this will be what will matter, right, is then if we look at the ratings and there's a Thursday to Monday tournament in June in 2024, and it's a Saudi-backed event and no one's watching it, then no one's going to talk about it. So I agree people are talking about it now, but at the end of the day, the only time we really talk about golf is controversy, right? So somebody says something they shouldn't have said, or Tiger Woods is playing on Sunday. I, I, I wish that were true in my home. There's a lot of talk <laughs> of golf, a lot of time. <laughs> but this sounds like a this sounds like a file under wait and see and and circle back in six months and and see what the what the impact has been. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week. Before we jump over to Politicology Plus, let's talk about what we're watching. Frank, what do you have? Uh, my focus is on the economy. Uh, I mean, I want to see if the Fed falls through with these rate increases in June and July. I think watching these inflation numbers that are going to come out, I forget if they come out later this week or maybe late next week. I think at the end of the day, as we all know, it's about the economy. I think as we you know, set the the fall schedule, I think it's going to be a function of how sluggish is this economy. And at the end of the day, that's going to be the driver of our politics. And so that's what I'm watching. And I think the, the Fed rates are really the indicator to show, obviously, in May, they signal they're going to keep going with rate increases. Um, and if they fall through that, that means they're still seeing um, warning signs around re- recession, and they may trigger it by increasing the rates on top of it. They may have to to keep inflation down in the long term, but that's what I'm watching. Good one. Michael, what do you got? I've been what, paying attention, a lot of attention to the Supreme Court, and um, not just because of the leaked opinion around uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, there, there are a couple of cases. There's a case coming this week and possibly another case coming in next session um, that Sambhav Sankar from Earth Justice wrote about in the New York Times last week, um, but that almost no one would be paying attention to. There are some unusual cases around administrative law and regulatory um, authority. One is they're both are cases revolving around the EPA. And one is West Virginia versus the EPA. That's the one that's coming down next week. And then there's one next year, uh, Sackett versus the EPA, that's about clean water. And ultimately, this this is about a sort of little understood, relatively new Supreme Court doctrine called the major questions doctrine. And it has to do, and it started in a tobacco case in 2000 versus the FDA around the Supreme Court basically saying, this issue is too big. This could not have been what Congress meant when they empowered a regulator to go after this issue. And they imposed this this like external restriction on Congress's intention 
around creating a regulatory agency, there, there's this really profound ideological overreach imp Im implicit in this whole idea of major questions and a really sort of discounting of the clarity and intention of Congress and a handicapping of regulators to regulate. And I think that last piece, I think, plays into the broader cultural challenge of how, how, where does expertise and our reliance on what different elements of government are for is getting reshaped in these kinds of questions. Not only is it anti-democratic in many ways and sort of like reflective of this like ability of sort of people in minority power to sustain minority power. I said that was going to come back. Uh, it is also reflective of, do we want experts involved in executing policy? And um, if we don't, I think we're, we are in for a world of pain as the world continues to get complex. And as into Frank's point about being able to regulate media, we got to put that, that responsibility has got to live with the people capable of solving the problem. And then we got to trust the different pieces to work. And this is a like the Supreme Court very intentionally like going out and taking cases where they may not even have controversy or standing in order to pull at the bricks underlying the basic responsibility of experts in public government. And so it, it, it deserves a lot of attention because if the EPA is not allowed to regulate things like clean air and clean water, um, we got a real, we, we already have real questions around how we're going to sort of deal with confront climate questions. And if the regulators meant to, that have been set up to help us with that problem, aren't allowed to help us with that problem, we got a problem. Mm, that's, that's, has a lot of implications. All right, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to power through talking about the January 6th community hearings, where can people find you on the internet, Michael? You can find me very occasionally tweeting at Slaby, um, but I write a, a, a semi-weekly newsletter called Seven Bridges on Substack. That's probably a good place to find me. Awesome. Frank? You can't. I don't. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I don't, I don't have a Twitter. I don't Facebook. Oh my God, that's such a wonderful answer. I, so, I mean, if someone wants to find me, I guess they could email the show and they could get my email addresses. I do email people. You you heard it here first. If you if you email the show, uh, Frank is going to personally respond to. Yeah, to that's right. We're we're going to we're going to give you Frank's email we'll address make, we'll and social set. security number. Frank just took we'll responsibility for the show mailbag. <laughs> that's great. Well, you can find me on the internet on Twitter quite regularly at at Lucy M Caldwell. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.